0: the reading of the scriptures from Romans chapter 6, reading verses 15 to 23. I invite your uh, hearing of God's word with reverence and faith. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the uh, enduring enemies uh, of the church, uh,
1: it's a party called uh, the Libertines, Sometimes referred to as antinomians. Again, if you dissect that word, antinomians, those who are against the law. And certainly in the church, these are professing Christians that make tragic deductions from the nature of the grace of God and the promise of the forgiveness of sin. Uh, it goes something like this um, Since we're forgiven and since the law ceases, Uh, to be a force against us, we can continue in sin, can we not? And they expect uh, to say yes. And of course, uh, it's a tragic theological deduction because they do not understand the application of redemption and that God's grace uh, changes uh, the justified. So it interdicts a life of sin rather than turning us over to a life of sin. Jesus, see, uh, it saves us, if you will, uh, not to sin, but from sin. So that grace does not engage license. On the contrary, grace engages the obedience of righteousness, uh, resulting in sanctification and eternal life. So it is a beautiful reminder, uh, implicit in this text. The majesty of the grace of God, not just that justifies us, but it's going to radically change us over time and in degree. Uh, The power of grace is implicit in this text, and we need to acknowledge that it is implicit as a cause. Uh, The effect is to help us to understand who we are by virtue of what Christ did for us upon the cross. It's interesting in our text that the precise subject is slavery because the word is used eight times. The subject in some manner or form has to do with slavery. And indeed it does. We were once slaves uh, to sin and to uh, the way of a fallen world. Grace has interdicted us and made us slaves now of a different power, namely the power of righteousness unto salvation and, of course, eternal life. It is a reminder that two ways of life, just two, slave of sin or slave of God, two masters and, of course, two outcomes. And for the Christian, for those of us who know the Savior, our grace changes our master from the cruelty of sin a cruel master, to the beauty of righteousness. It's important to recognize, of course, to set our text theologically, uh, because uh, we are uh, changing from grace in a legal context, which is the doctrine of justification, to grace in a moral context by which Uh, we uh, engage in a change in our morality. Uh, Namely, the word is uh, is righteousness in our text. Uh, And I remind you that there's a necessary link between the two. Uh, Because of the legal work of Christ and our freedom now from uh, the guilt of sin, what follows necessarily is a moral change uh, as the grace of God and the Spirit enables us over time and in degree to deal with uh, the ever present power of sin in our lives. Necessary link. That's one of the dangers of the libertine and the antinomians. Uh, they oftentimes sever the two and they hold on to simply the legal change. Because I've been saved, I can continue in sin. Uh, They forget that the Spirit comes and takes up residence within us to begin to effect a moral change. Uh, So, um, again, the reminder that grace does not engage license. It engages change in sanctification. In verses 15 to 19, uh, we now serve a different master, and this is why we do not continue in sin. Change in masters change in our way of life. Because of grace, of course, it changes us. Uh, so we are, we are no longer under law, Paul says, verse 15. We're not under the law. But does that mean that we can become lawless? And Paul answers in an emphatic negation. It's really a parallel. If you look at chapter 6 and verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Uh, there the issue is grace. Here it's we're no longer under the law. Uh, but you err if you say that now I can become lawless. Uh, Paul would answer you cannot remain as you are because of who you are, what Christ did for you, and what the Spirit does in taking up residence in your life. So Paul negates the uh, option, and the rest of the text explains why. First, he affirms that uh, we are either slaves of sin or slaves to obedience. The former leads to eternal death, and the latter uh, leads uh, to righteousness. And the word righteousness here is used in a moral sense. Justification, it's used in a legal sense. Now it's moral. Uh, We are shifting from a courtroom to the human heart. We know about the work of the grace of God that is affected in a courtroom. That's justification. But now we're dealing with the moral change that occurs when the spirit comes in and affects change as well. So that here the righteousness is an inherent righteousness. By inherent, I mean it's ours personally. In justification, it's what? It's an imputed righteousness. The righteousness of another person, namely Christ. Uh, But because of the legal work done for us in the courtroom of heaven, we now have a moral duty. And that moral duty is an inherent righteousness, which is our personal possession. Does not justify us. Only the righteousness of Christ justifies us. But it does come to change us. And that's the beauty of holiness. So we, verse 17, were slaves of sin, but now we have become obedient from the heart. Again, notice the shift. Courtroom to heart. I find it interesting here that the obedience was from teaching to which uh, they were committed or really handed over to. That's what grace does. Uh, One of the marks, I think, of genuine salvation is an insatiable desire to learn the scriptures, uh, to to study them. And so grace uh, gives us that desire. Uh, And the uh, Spirit of God enables us to respond to that teaching. And so that uh, God uses the word... Uh, to enable us to respond because the word of God teaches us about moral duty and moral righteousness. Let's look at verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I find it so interesting in our culture we're having this ongoing debate about slavery, how evil it is. I mean, in a political context, of course, that's true. Say in the context of the South prior to the Civil War, decisively true. But not for the Christian. We just simply change from slavery to one moral aspect, namely uh, the wickedness of sin and ruin, everlasting death, to the beauty of slavery to righteousness, serving a new master, A beautiful master. Uh, Sin comes to us dressed in beauty. Uh, It's really an ugly master. Righteousness comes in the beauty of holiness. So we simply change from slavery to one to another. And that change in status uh, means our conduct changes as well. It's very interesting in in, uh, verse 18, both uh, verbs are in the passive voice, Meaning what? Grace is acting upon us. Just the implicitness of the power of grace. Uh, The world has to go and take a course on moral duty. Um, The Spirit invades our hearts, gives us the Word which teaches us. The Spirit illumines our minds to grasp the reality of it. So it's a divine operation that delivers us continually with respect to moral duty. And grace is the ever-present provision in this new, beautiful form of slavery that Paul terms as the slavery to righteousness. Uh, Slavery, of course, on the one hand, speaks to forced service. That's why oftentimes in the Bible we read about the bondage to sin. Uh, remind you of John eight thirty four? Jesus says, Truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. It's, 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 it's the master of all who are outside of Christ. They're its slaves. Uh, they must obey it because it's intrinsic to their nature as fallen creatures. But because of grace, we willingly serve a new master and are enabled now to please him. Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6.6, 6, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Notice this in our culture, very pejorative word, now used in a magnificent way. Slaves to Christ. A beautiful slavery because of a beautiful master. It once was ugly and mean. Causing incredible ruin. Now it's different. We're servants of a new master. uh, Who is Christ. Uh, It's very interesting when you you chase this word in a concordance. Uh, Sometimes it's translated servant. But literally it's slave, bond-servant. And over and over again, the apostles use it respecting themselves. Uh, Philippians, for example, I'm just going to look at one text. I've just read one, but uh, it's interesting that the apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Paul used to serve religion, served himself served Judaism in a stellar manner. Christ interdicted him on the road to Damascus and changed what he used to be as a slavery to religion, now to a slave to the beauty of holiness and the most beautiful master that there is, Jesus Christ. And now it's a service to righteousness and obedience. In justification... The obedience was Christ's alone. Alone. Only his obedience saves. But now in sanctification, the Spirit of God works a righteousness inherently our own. Changes our servitude, correspondingly our service. Paul uh, presses the parallel again. Uh, you used to be slaves to impurity and lawlessness. That's changed. And the Spirit of God has come into your life now. Ends that. I mean, think of, think of what we can shove under that rubric of, of impurity and lawlessness. Um, read recently of a family in Oklahoma City that uh, came in contact with a child slave in Africa. Can you imagine what it would be like as a young child to be pressed into service? It was in the fishing industry. Uh, Think of a phrase like a sex slave. Endemic in our culture. We bring them into our culture. I mean, how bad can it be? Men who travel to places like Thailand. Really. To engage in such. Uh, The addictions that are endemic part of our culture. Doesn't sound like fun to me. Uh, Perhaps there's a momentary flash of chemical relief. I mean, I don't know, but it's really a cruel master. Spirit invades. Over time, begins to make us new to a righteousness inherently our own, lawlessness. I mean, I watch those uh, clips on the news, just lawless. There's people breaking into stores, uh, creating evil and harm, Uh, that's lawlessness, no law. The Christian is removed from that because of what? The Spirit of God moves in, uh, makes us servants of righteousness and obedience, sanctification. So that, again, grace engages change. We used to be this, but now we're this. And I would remind you the best of religion uh, can engage in outward change. Christ changes the heart, and He owns the heart. He affects change and the beauty of righteousness. Uh, And so he commands us, Paul commands us now, uh, to serve in righteousness resulting in sanctification. So it is this reminder that grace is the provision of our slavery to righteousness. A beautiful slavery to us because of the change that it engages Because grace is at work within us, we can act. And so Paul says, act based on who you are. Your service is changed, so act accordingly. And again, the context is what? He's interdicting some who say, I'm no longer under law, I can be lawless. Because of grace, I'm going to sin so grace can abound. Paul says, no, you cannot. He's interrupting that corrupt line of thought. Uh, the word sanctification in verse 19 is used in a moral sense uh, the word literally means to set up set be set apart contextually we are set apart from service contrary to the will of God uh, to service that is pleasing to the will of God And it's not only the negative sense. We not only leave lawlessness and impurity, but we also do positive things like read the Scriptures, go to church, partake of the sacraments, encourage the saints. So it's not just negative change, it's positive change. I have uh, someone who is the profound object of my affection. I remind him of the positive change. License says, I don't have to go to church. Grace says, I'm going to make you want to go, desire to go love going, because there God in a special way localizes His presence with His people. I remember the days I would go to church and doze off, snooze off, get bored, think of the upcoming ball game on television. But but there is a delight the change of God as he works not only negative we leave things we leave certain activities but the positive we want to do certain things not to engage uh, an inherent righteousness because grace is at work within us and we participate because grace has changed us the moral imperative is our duty based upon our new status Again, we could no longer do the things we used to do because we are no longer who we used to be. We used to be slaves to impurity and unrighteousness, and now that's changed. We obey God because we're no longer in bondage to a life of sin. We've been freed, Paul says. Uh, We've been, if you will, manumitted, manumissioned. Slaves are set free Uh, from one way of life to another. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse seven. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Uh, The imputed righteousness of Christ uh, saves. Inherent righteousness sanctifies and is evidence of the salvation and the gift of a new heart. The second reason we are not to continue in sin is a life of sin uh, because of the outcome. Verses 20 to 23, God frees us to serve, pardon me, grace frees us to serve God, the outcome of which is eternal life. Again, I remind you of something that's implicit in this text. Two masters, two servitudes, two slavery, just two. Sometimes we think life is so complex. Well, it is complex, I grant you that, but there's just two servitudes, two masters, and just two outcomes, life or death. Uh, The end state of bondage to sin is death, eternal death. A corrosive death that is at work even in those who are in bondage to it, destroying everything that it touches. We are different. We've been freed, manumitted from sin, and enslaved to God, and we have fruit resulting in sanctification, and the end is eternal life. I mean, the greatest gift of all the world is eternal life. Those who have believed in the Son have life; have that life now in a beginning form that just grows and grows and grows. The Apostle Paul says, oh, that we would know the, the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of God. Incredible. A love so great. It's moving us by its great, incredible power out of this world and its slavery and bondage to sin to a life of incredible beauty. You know, i sometimes wonder about that beauty. I mean, there's incredible beauty in this physical world. Chump change compared to beauty of everlasting life. And then we have a measure of that beauty now in Christ our Redeemer and it will explode So we come to a fuller understanding of the fullness of Christ, the majesty. Remember, uh, Charles Spurgeon was preaching a sermon, and uh, um, the occasion would be a woman was listening raptly to his message and then went immediately to be with the Lord. So that's terrible. Spurgeon said, I almost wished I could have changed places with her. If we but knew what awaits us. The fullness of the beauty of holiness to comprehend it. That's what Paul is reminding us of change of servitude. Uh, It's important to recognize that Slavery to sin is most pejorative. Um, But slavery to righteousness and God and sanctification and our beautiful Savior is not. It's not pejorative. It's now positive. You know, by the way, that's a way to witness to the world. We're always hearing these political rants. I I understand the political rant against slavery and bondage, uh, rightfully so. And I can't imagine the horror of a young child uh, in bondage to a cruel slave master on a boat catching fish in Africa. Uh, But then someone goes and secures him and sets him free, brings him into their family. It's a beautiful story in the paper about that a month or so ago. He once was a slave, but now he's in a new home. Been adopted by a loving family. uh, To uh, serve accordingly because of his change in identity. We now serve God willingly. Willingly. Oh, you know, think of the joy partaking of the sacrament of the Lord's table. The joy of hearing the Word, studying the Word, perhaps even memorizing the Word. The grace of God. Our sentiments, our values, our interests have changed, and we delight in serving such a gracious and benevolent Master who loves us. Illustration of this text I I know you know well, Matthew uh, chapter 11. Verses 29 and 30. Uh, Context is just the cruel uh, bondage of religion. Jesus says, verse 28, Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, eternal rest, now and throughout all eternity. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my load is light. Notice he doesn't say there's no yoke. There is a yoke. Bondage to uh, servitude to God, to Jesus. Yoke is easy because the Spirit moves in our hearts and enables us. There's no longer a bondage. Easy because of the Spirit. Notice again, I didn't say no bondage. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The bondage of religion is incredibly heavy. We have the spirit comes to make it easy, joyful. We willingly bear up under it. It's also light because of what? The outcome. The presence of God. eternal glory. Now we see it opaquely in the Scriptures. Man, what a joy that will be when we see Him as it were face-to-face. Just must be such an incredible, beautiful time. See Him face-to-face. And so we serve Because not just our master has changed, but the outcome is sanctification and eternal life. Oh, to be with the Lord. Or in the final prayer of the entire Bible, come, Lord Jesus. Because this yoke is easy, this burden is light. Uh, There there is a measure of irony in this text, It's, it's critical to apprehend. The world thinks that believing and obeying Christ, oh, what a snooze. Drudgery, boredom, boring life of misery and myth. I mean, I understand that. I just don't get it because I don't have the Spirit. It's not because of the change engaged by the Spirit. That the Spirit willingly makes us desirous of serving to engaging serving. The grace is the provision of our slavery to righteousness, moving us along, carrying a burden, a yoke made easy and light because who our master is and because of what awaits us at the end of the age. The non-Christian says, oh, gee, oh. The boredom of the Christian life, no fun, no excitement. Would that they knew. Would that they knew. The reality is the opposite. Christ is freedom from a cruel and evil taskmaster that will pay off everyone in counterfeit money. And they will go to eternal ruin. The irony is that slavery to sin is seemingly enjoyment and pleasure and autonomy of cosmopolitan sophistication. Oh, really, please. It's bondage to a cruel master, the graduation of which is totally other than cosmopolitan sophistication. It's all a mirage. Used to go to church with a guy that had, a, had an addiction to something or other, but finally caught up with him and had to, you know, go through the, I don't know, eight-state process, eight-step process, whatever it is. I understand. But you 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 could hear him talk about the cruel master that he served. Let me tell you something, something less than fun and excitement. Maybe there's an original Russian buzz, but when it comes to own you, it's a cruel master. I mean, If you think it's fun and excitement, look at the pictures on the newsreels that I occasionally see of hypodermic needles all over the city streets and people living in squalor. Yeah, really, it was fun, wasn't it? Hardly fun. Hardly. Cruel master. It is a mirage. It's a term that comes out of uh, the old Russian empire, Potemkin village. Wanted to impress the monarch, let's get on a boat and just make a city look like a city. But we can't afford to make it three-dimensional. Just put up a facade. So hence the term Potemkin village. It's not a real village. It's just a facade to impress the monarch. And then when she floats by or he, you, you take the village down because it was all a fake anyway. It's like a prop in a movie set. Potemkin village. That's, that's, that's what the world has, Potemkin village until even the props will be taken down and fired. It's really all fakery, because it's a cruel master. Furthermore, it ends in spiritual death. It is absent God in eternal love. Absent love. Can you imagine a world without love? I mean, think of, you know, for those of you who are young adults, the love of your family, love of your father, your mother, perhaps siblings. Yeah. Imagine a world absent that to an infinite degree. <laughs> Historic illustration of the Second World War, as you know, is uh, the Nazis conquered uh, Eastern Europe, and really Western Europe, Uh, The SS would move in and begin to uh, get ethnic Jews to get on trains. And they were told all along, look, it's it's a resettlement camp. All will go well for you. Where did the trains end? You know the sign over Auschwitz, works make free. Now they were enslaved, killed and worked to death. Just incredible cruelty. That's it's like the people who are on a train serving sin. It's a cruel master. But it has a crueler depot than they could ever imagine. The portal to hell and Dante's Inferno. All ye who enter here, abandon hope. That's that's the end state. Ours is different. Uh, we have a hope that is the reason that we keep pressing on, serving the Lord. It will come, come to the fullness of realization in a way that we can never fully imagine in this life. And hope will envelop us in eternal love. So the libertine is, is a, bad, a bad theologian. I've been saved by grace so I can sin all the more. Now grace changes you. Because I'm no longer under law, I can become lawless. No, no. Uh, Spirit of God's going to invade and give you a willing desire to serve righteousness and sanctification and eternal life. When I was in seminary, there was a professor there uh, who held that uh, once you're saved, you're always saved, and you can indeed. Not that you should, but you can indeed uh, fall into a life of total sin. Maybe even become a heretic. I don't know, become a Hindu or a Muslim. And yet you're still a Christian. Because you made a decision for Christ. And once you're saved, you're always saved. What you lose out on, he would contend, is the rewards of heaven. You get into heaven, but you don't get the best food, the best drink, and the best addresses. I'm sitting here reading this saying, what kind of theology is this? I mean, that's just... That's just... Misses the beauty of the grace of God that doesn't just save us in a courtroom, but invades our hearts. And it infects, if you will, radical change. To make us new. That we don't lose the rewards of heaven. We gain everything. And nothing is held back. Never understood that theology. But by the way, it's quite prevalent today. Endemic in many churches. Once saved, always saved. And if you wander away and fall away, you're still saved. No, they don't understand salvation. That's license. Uh, That's lawlessness. Doesn't understand grace that moves in and begins to open those doors and clean up and give us desires to serve the master of the beauty of holiness. I once saw an invitation uh, to a church. Come as you are. Remain as you are. And we'll throw a party celebrating who you are. Remain as you are? Really? No. When grace moves in, we don't remain as we are. Because we're no longer the men and women that we used to be. And thank God for that. Because grace engages change to willingly serve a new master. And one day we'll have a party celebrating who we are in Jesus Christ and the great supper of the Lamb in eternal life. So lawlessness indeed, tragically, is endemic in many churches, but they don't understand grace. That's what Paul is teaching us here. We can't continue in sin. We can't become lawless. And that we are now servants of the Most High God, servants of righteousness and sanctification, peace. And that grace transforms us and makes us willing to serve our great and beautiful Savior. And thank God for such grace.